Well, I want to say hi to everybody in this room. I want to say hi to everybody at all of our campuses, people who are joining us online. I'm so glad that you are here for this message. A lot of times, uh, I have a sense that I ought to do something or a sense of what kind of person I want to become, but then I get stopped by a single two-word phrase, but I. I know I ought to work out and get in shape, but I feel kind of tired. I know it would be great to get into a life group and form deep relationships, but I'm kind of introverted. I would love to live relaxed and confident, but I worry. I'd love to have my finances uh, in terrific order and be generous, but I spend too much. I know I should eat kale and quinoa and tofu, but I love butter and sugar and bacon. But I is what might be called a defeater belief. It's not just that it keeps me from succeeding at doing what really matters. It'll stop me from even trying. And then I'll never even know if I could have done it. Because, but I can't do it. And then to make things worse, sometimes I find out I'm incompetent in an area where I didn't even know I was incompetent. When we moved out to the Bay Area, there was a guy part of our church then named Ned Coletti. And he also worked with the Giants. He has since gone on to the Dodgers. But he asked me if I would do a chapel service for the Giants, and I said, yeah. And then he asked me, do you want to take batting practice while you're at AT AT&T Park? Turns out there's a guy named John Yandel, also was a part of our church, who threw batting practice for Barry Bonds. And Ned said he would throw batting practice for me. And I thought, well, John was a couple years older than me, and so it's not like facing real big league pitching. And I played sandlot baseball in the neighborhood when I was growing up, so I thought, yeah, I could probably do this. So I stood in the batter's box at AT AT&T Park. It was pretty cool. And John was on the mound, and he wound up, and he let go. And I heard the sound of a ball hitting the net behind me. And I thought, he's not just lobbing them in there, as Ned led me to believe that he would. He wants to make this a contest. He's throwing the ball as hard as he can. The guy that pitched to Barry Bonds wants to see if I can hit his best stuff. So he wound up again, and this time I swung. But by the time I swung, the ball had already been in the net for several seconds. And so I kept starting my swing earlier. And eventually, when he would begin his windup, I would begin my swing. And I fouled off several balls, and I was feeling better about myself. And then he said, would you like me to put a little zip on one? (laughs) Apparently, those had been his lobs. And I said, well, sure, it's been tough to time these slow balls that you've been throwing me. So he, he wound up and threw one more time, and I never even saw it. And I asked him afterwards, was that your best pitch? And he said, no, you wouldn't even want to see my best pitch. He actually sent a scouting report to Ned Coletti after that. Seriously, Ned was kind enough to send it on to me. And it read, John Ortberg bats right, throws right, took 10 minutes of batting practice. As a hitter, John makes a good pastor. (laughs) But I sucketh at baseball, and I didn't even know. So I don't want to get in that box again. That little phrase, but I, as it turns out, actually occurs in the Bible a whole bunch of times uh, as kind of a reason, an excuse for not doing what God calls somebody to do. God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. Moses says, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God goes to Gideon and says, I want you to deliver my people from the Midianites. And Gideon says, but I am the least in my family. God goes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to prophesy, to speak my word to my people. Jeremiah says, but I do not know how to speak. I am only a child, too young. Esther, go to the king and save Israel. 
but I have not been called by the king for 30 days. Abraham, become the father of a great nation, but I am too old. Peter, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, and I'll do a miraculous thing for you. But I tried all night. Over and over, we see these words, but I, but I, but I can't, won't, shouldn't. And it's very interesting. God uh, pretty much never actually disagrees with any of those statements. He doesn't say, hey, Moses, you're a pretty good speaker. Or Abraham, after all, you're not all that old. Like, he, he never disputes their inadequacy. Humanly, we often do. Humanly, we often engage in what might be called the denial of inadequacy. No, no, no. You can do this. You're amazing. Now, that was actually a bit of a technique in the ancient world where Paul was writing. We're studying this book of 1 Corinthians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And Corinth was real tough on people. It was a very competitive culture, very much a startup culture, a lot going on there economically. And we've seen there were sayings like, uh, only the tough survive in Corinth. Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Corinth is a place of pressure. It'll eat you up and spit you out. And as it turns out, apparently the people that were part of the church in Corinth uh, were for the most part folks that would have ranked pretty low on the adequacy scale. There were not people that were impressive by Corinthian standards. Now, there was actually ancient advice that said to speakers or writers, if they were trying to win a following, trying to commend themselves or gain credibility with an audience, that one of the techniques you need to be sure and use was throw in some praise for your audience. Let them know that you recognize how intelligent they are or how influential they are or how well-born they are or how connected or powerful they are. Okay, so with all that as backdrop now, try to imagine how the people in that little church at Corinth felt when Paul's letter to them is being read out loud for them all, and they hear Paul's description of them at the beginning of this letter. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. That's an odd way to address a crowd back in that day. Paul doesn't start out, hey, Corinth, you got it. Man, Corinth, you got high IQ and high EQ and a lot of resources and a lot of connection and a lot of potential. Corinth, you're killing it. God's so excited to have you on the team now. Instead, Paul actually invites them to reflect on what we might call the review of personal inadequacy. Hey, Corinth, wise? Not so much. Influential? Not so much. Well-born? Great gene pool? No, not really. And Paul is incredibly candid about this. He, he leads on this. He invites them to reflect on this. And then the implications that he draws from this are even more remarkable. He doesn't say, you know, you're not all that, Corinth, so kind of lower your expectations. Don't don't dream big. Don't expect to do anything marvelous for God or influential in this world. Doesn't go there. He doesn't say, thank God a few of you are rich and smart and, and we'll build stuff around you. No, no. He says, you expect great things now because God is up to something that nobody could have anticipated, that nobody could have done, but God. But God chose the foolish things. Literally in Texas, just the foolish. Could be also the foolish ones, the foolish people, to shame the wise. But God chose the weak things, the weak ones of the world, to shame the strong. But God chose the lowly things of the world 
and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, he's quoting here from Jeremiah, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Jeremiah had said a long time earlier, uh, don't boast in your riches, don't boast in your strength, don't boast in your wisdom. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Now, there's two words that are the turning point of this whole passage. They were what changed everything in Paul's life, and they can be the turning point of your life if you want them to be. And they are the words, but God. But I, but I, but I, but God. But God is now doing in Corinth with you, Paul says, what God already began on the cross with Jesus. That is, overturning human expectations, reversing who matters and who does not, elevating the lowly, changing death into life, turning guilt into innocence, taking what the world regards as abject failure and making it into glorious victory. But God, and if you carry nothing away from this message other than that, I want you to carry those two words, but God, away. So let us all say them together out loud with passion, but God. But God means this world does not get the last word on who you are or what you become or what you might do. This world may say your situation is never going to change. The world may say that lack of education will always embarrass you. That addiction will always enslave you. That depression will always defeat you. That failure will always define you. That past will always haunt you. That future will always frighten you. That weakness will always. But God says otherwise. But God begs to differ. But God. That phrase gets used over and over and over in the Bible. But I, but I, but I know. But God, but God, but God. Joseph said it to his brothers who, for crying out loud, sold him, their brother, into slavery. Years later, when he understood from a different perspective, he said to them, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. And guess what? It did great good. The psalmist said, my flesh and my heart may fail, and they will, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus said, with human beings, it is possible. Even salvation is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, but God. So stop excusing yourself, letting yourself off the hook whining about your own inadequacy that gets you out of God's calling on your life. But I, but I, but I, but I, we all say it. I know this sounds odd. I just don't know how else to put it. God is bigger than your butt. One T. Okay. Of course you're not smart enough. Of course you're not strong enough. Of course you're not good enough. But God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the lowly and the meek and the timid and the too shy and the too loud and the not very polished and the not very accomplished and the not very connected so that whatever is going on in your heart or in your job or with your family or with your money or with your children or with your health and it looks really bad and I know, but God. And I tell you, sin, death, pain, and hell are real, but they are not final because the power of the cross and the resurrection has not yet finished remaking this sorry world, but God. And now Paul brings this to Corinth, but God, lowly, not very wise, not very influential, not very well, you know, you think the Bay Area stuff's got nothing on Corinth. 
In Corinth, it was so competitive, even slaves would engage in competition with other slaves in the household to see who looks the most elite, who looks the most impressive, who looks the most accomplished or the most attractive. But God says otherwise about every human being, nobody too lowly. This goes way back to the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, when an unlikely character by the name of David is going to be anointed king. And God's prophet Samuel says, people look at the outward appearance. Corinth looks at the outward appearance. The Bay Area looks at the outward appearance. What are your degrees? How do you look? How smart? How attractive? But God looks at the heart. What does God see? What does God feel when he looks like a human being, even the most lowly, even the most uneducated, even the most inadequate? Uh, Nancy sent me a video not real long ago of her interacting with our little grandson, Chance. Chance can't say a single word yet, can't carry on an intelligent conversation. This is a 40-second video, and I cannot see it often enough. Would you like to see a video of our little grandson, Chance? All right, take a look at the screens. I didn't know that. Really? Uh-huh. And then what happened? Oh. oh, I see. And then what did you do? Oh, you did? Oh, that seems so wise. Just like this little Owlie right here. Is this your little pal, Owlie? Hello, Do you have anything else to say before we shut this up? Oh. Okay. <laughs> Can't even say a single word. Looks like he's thinking something, doesn't it? I mean, it's like he thinks he's carrying on a conversation. How much is that little life worth? What does God feel? What does God think when God looks at any single human being on the planet? Whatever their age, whatever their color, whatever their back, what goes on in the heart of God? How much does every life matter to God? What is God doing in this world? Is it just the rich? Is it just the strong? Is it just the powerful? You know, we didn't think that little guy was going to come. My daughter Laura went through three miscarriages in a single year and then was pregnant with nine months of horrific nausea every day. And then she wrestles with anxiety, and for a variety of reasons, it just went off the charts. Panic attacks so painful, we didn't know what to do or if she could make it through it. And then a delivery that was so awful, forceps delivery, well over four hours of pushing, and then this blue body that came out. I'll never forget getting that phone call from Nancy because I had to be in the waiting room at 3 in the morning. We thought we were going to lose him. But God said, I'm not done with this little life yet. Now, that does not mean that there will not be pain in the future. There will. There will. Oh, yeah. That does not mean that in the church, all our but God stories have happy little bows tied on them and are real neat. They're not. It means we stand on this ground that, yes, pain will come, but God will have the eternal last word. Now, you might think, well, Maybe the church at Corinth had a lot of lowly people that were pretty inadequate, but surely Paul had lots of confidence in his adequacy. He's a brilliant, educated man. And this is where it gets even weirder, his writings. Um, there were other 
wannabe leaders, self-proclaimed apostles that came to Corinth. And they tried to pull people away from Paul and particularly the message of the crucified Jesus, the cross, that at the center of everything is this great reversal and self-sacrificing love and humility and servanthood is really greatness, turning everything upside down. They weren't so much into that, so they compared their ministry to Paul's. That's what these kind of leaders would do. And they said they had greater vision. They said they could work greater miracles. Uh, they were perceived to, to be considerably more eloquent than Paul. And they attracted these great financial backers, these sponsors that gave them all kinds of money. And Paul wouldn't even go there. So Paul's writing to the church at Corinth in part to try to win them back to this message of the lowly Jesus and the cross. And we would expect Paul, in order to persuade people to follow him, to listen to him, to list his ministry credentials and his achievements. Number of souls saved. Number of churches started. Number of sermons preached. Number of converts. Number of letters written. Because he's writing the New Testament for crying out loud. He does none of that. What he says to commend himself to them is the oddest thing in the history of human literature. He says, I have been in prison more frequently. Who brags about that? been flogged more severely, good for you, Paul, been exposed to death again and again. Do you understand? These were not sources of success or impressiveness in the ancient world, not in Corinth. He lists his failures and his problems and his rejections and his humiliations and his being let over the wall of a city in a basket. Rome would honor soldiers when they were uh, laying siege to a city. The first one to climb over the wall would get a medal. Nobody's getting a medal for uh, being humiliated and kicked out of the city and having to escape in a little basket. It's a celebration of personal weakness and inadequacy, and it climaxes in this. In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but God does not. This is quite a remarkable statement. Apparently, Paul has a problem with a tendency to get conceited. How many of you are conceited here? Nobody, virtually nobody. You're all better than Paul. Way to go. Well, Paul had that problem. And it's so bad that he's given some painful and shameful condition that he calls a thorn in the flesh. There have been all kinds of guesses over the centuries about what it might have been based on the things that we know about Paul's life. It might have been a vision problem. Some folks think it might possibly have been epilepsy. Some people guess because he had been beaten, shipwrecked through horrible trauma, that it might be some form of what we now call PTSD. Maybe Paul was one who suffered from anxiety. We know that people said that he was not eloquent or impressive in person. Maybe he had a speech defect. Maybe he started badly. Maybe he's got a weight problem. Whatever it is, it's a source of ridicule and humiliation and shame for him. And if that's not bad enough, that he's conceited and that he's got some shameful condition, he prays and asks God to remove it, and his prayers are a failure three times. These other apostles coming to Corinth are strong, successful, eloquent, wealthy poster boys for God and God's life. Paul is a train wreck. 
a beaten, imprisoned, whipped, tent-making, conceit-prone, thorn-carrying, prayer-failing, self-confessed weakling. And you're going to lead with that? Those are your credentials? Why on earth would anybody ever talk that way about themselves? One reason, two words, but God. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Who talks like this? Who thinks this way? Who views life this way? Paul, you cannot be serious. But he is. What must your view of reality and God like for you to have the capacity to delight in weakness? Because he's convinced with Jesus, everybody has a source of strength outside themselves. Everybody has a calling, even the most lowly. And everybody has a thorn, even the most exalted. So the question is whether you're going to say, but I or but God. But I can't or but God can. And the answer you choose will determine the life that you lead. I've told you, the very first church I worked, I got up to preach and fainted dead away in the middle of my sermon. And the very next time I got up to preach at that church, I fainted dead away again. And my boss, John F. Anderson, said to me, you're going to get up again and preach again this next weekend. And I said, but I might faint again. Fainting while you talk is a bad quality in a preacher. <laughs> Just tends to be distracting for people. It's not a good thing. That passage about a thorn in the flesh, I lived that. That was my passage. That passage more than anything else in that era. And I asked God, would you take away the thorn of my fear? And he did not. John, get up and preach. But I am afraid. But I am weak but I feel stress, but I think it's going to happen again. And God did not take that weakness away. God did not take the stress away. God did not take the fear away. God did not take the feeling away. God did not give me a guarantee. But God has of this week kept me upright while preaching for 36 years in a row. But God. Some people, some people are naturally confident when it comes to dating and asking other people out and taking romantic risks. I was not one of those people. I was in my mid-twenties. I had never had a girlfriend. I had dated Nancy three times, and then she moved back 2,000 miles away to go to grad school, and then I found out she was dating a guy back there, and I didn't like that. And my roommate Dave said to me, John, you got to call her. But I don't know what I'd say. But I don't know what she'd say. But I am not good at doing that kind of thing. So I called her up, and the call did not go well. <laughs> at one point, I said to her, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I like you. And then I just waited for her to say back, I like you. Or anything, really. Nothing at all. <laughs> Wasn't a good moment. And inside, I'm thinking, of course, that other guy is closer to her. That other guy is better at this kind of stuff than I am. He is better looking than I am. He is higher on the latter food chain of dating than I am, all of which was true. I had no chance, but God smote that man down, romantically speaking. 
This weekend, Nancy and I were speaking to a group of pastors and uh, spouses in the Bay Area, just talking about ministry and marriage and church life. And Nancy was talking to them with just that amazing gift of authenticity and openness and honesty and faith that God has uniquely given her. And I looked over and I said, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. But God. And I really am. I'm so... And gang, our church is a but God story. You know, we began in 1873, 145 years ago, with 13 members. Over the next 50 years, we grew from 13 members down to 12 members. <laughs> True story. Almost closed down numerous times. One time, a couple came to our church with their own story. They struggled with infertility. They got married, and then they were childless for 18 years. Prayed, finally gave up. And then 18 years into their marriage, they had a little boy. And the husband got down on his knees to thank God for this miracle child. And they came to our church. They wanted a good Sunday school for their son. Uh, and it was in one of those eras when the church was struggling. They actually bought the first manse, a house for a pastor to live in. We have a foundation now, Church of the Pioneers Foundation. This, in some ways, was kind of the first movement towards that. And they brought in our first worship leader, got a carpet for our little church. While they were attending here, their little boy, their little miracle baby, who was who now a teenager, died. And they grieved, and they prayed, and they didn't know why. But God, out of that grief, gave them a dream to help other children, because they weren't going to have any more. And they decided to start a school. The husband said, you know what? Uh, we'll do, all the children in California will be our children. And they started it right down the street from here, and named it after their dead son, Leland Stanford Junior University. And the choir from our church sang when that cornerstone was laid. And they had such a passion for that mission. They had such a passion for women's education that by 1899, 40% of the Stanford student body in 1899 was female at a time when neither Harvard nor Yale had a single female student. Shame on you, Harvard and Yale. They had such a passion for the disadvantaged and the under-resourced that Mrs. Mr. Stanford had died, school faced tremendous problems. Mrs. Stanford literally sold her jewelry so that they could offer an education without tuition to anybody that was gonna to come to that school. If you go to that great campus, at the heart of it is a church that they built, the Stanfords. It's maybe the most remarkable church architecturally on the West Coast. Five, count them, five pipe organs. The largest mosaic ever built up to that time of Jesus teaching people. If you ever go on that campus and you go walking down Palm and you take a look at that quad, you see this giant mosaic and it's Jesus the teacher. They call it the Sermon on the Mount Mosaic. You go into the church, which I did this week. You sit there. Your eyes are drawn to all these stained glass windows. The whole story of the Bible is told there. But in particular, your eyes will be drawn towards the center of the church, Jesus Christ crucified on a cross, and Jesus Christ resurrected. 
And if you ever wonder, what in the world is Jesus doing in the middle of Stanford? Or how in the world did Stanford University ever come to be at all? I don't know. I don't know, but maybe partly it's because before they were over there, they were over here. And, and they sat in this pew. That's why this pew is here. This was actually the Stanford pew. Back in those days, if you wanted to sit in the, uh, towards the front of the church, you actually had to rent a pew. You guys come in and you get this religious information for nothing. I mean, it's, it's just <laughs> available. But back in that day, and this was the Stanford pew. That's why we saved it all these years. This is kind of where that began. As they lost a child, and as people will do when they go through a catastrophic loss, they pray and they grieve and they cry. And they did that right here. And then uh, this organ is here because Mrs. Stanford bought this organ for the church. It's our first organ. And the heart needs to sing. Sometimes things can be expressed in music that can't be expressed any other way. And so they would sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Or, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Or in a song written by another business guy in the 19th century who lost children, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever the cost, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I expect they thought when their boy died that their life was over. But God had concerns for this city and this church and this Bay Area. And out of a deep grief would be born a great university and an explosion of learning and innovation that would stun the world. And then this thing called Silicon Valley. Nobody could have predicted that. No human intelligence could ever have foreseen But God. So I've been thinking, you know, a century and a half ago, it was Jesus. This is not widely known. His story, his message, his teaching, Jesus the teacher, his death suffering on a cross, and his resurrection, hope from an empty tomb that was at the heart of the greatest catalyst for education on the peninsula, which in turn sparked the greatest innovation in technology that the world has yet seen. What if God were to do a new thing here? A spiritual thing. I know, I know, I know. The Bay Area is famous for skepticism and materialism and secularism and individualism and consumerism and isolationism and irreligion. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. But God, see, is not done. But God is not willing that any should perish. But God loves Silicon Valley. But God loves San Francisco and San Jose and Stanford and Cal Berkeley. And God is on the move. And God chooses the lowly. And God chooses the weak. And God chooses the poor. And God chooses the unconnected. And we know this because we're told in the Bible, above all else, Jesus of Nazareth was put to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And death cannot keep its hold on you either.
but God. So what if we just keep praying and serving and dreaming and asking? What, what, if, what, if, what if God could move in our church so that one day there would be a thriving campus within 15 minutes of everybody who lives in the Bay Area, top to bottom? And then what if we pray and partner with other churches, with other people, couples, spouses, volunteers, to see what God might do through us all? Just imagine 50 years from now for a moment, would you? I mean, this, this 145 years ago, no, nobody could have imagined what this area would be like now. 50 years from now, Eugene Lee, who oversees this campus and our campus pastors, will be well over 90 years old, long gone. <laughs> Sue Kim On, who oversees our central ministry team, children, students, worship, will be well over 90 years old, long gone. I will be 111 years old, probably have to preach sitting down. <laughs> what if 50 years from now people look back on this era and say, you know, there was a day when the Bay Area was the most unchurched region in the nation, but God moved in such mighty ways through his people that now the Bay Area has a spiritual vitality that rivals its technological vitality. Now the Bay Area is as rich spiritually as it used to be economically. Why would God not want this? Why would we not give ourselves wholly to be a part of it? When you pray, when you serve, when you give, when you volunteer, when you befriend somebody, when you invite somebody, when you love somebody, when your heart gets broken and your greatest dream dies and you ask God to redeem the suffering and you trust God to give you a new dream that you cannot even imagine, you become part of the unseen spiritual hinge on which the doors of human history turn. But God, but God, but God, and another door opens. So this week, those are your two words, but God. Not but I, but God. Don't you give up. Don't you stop dreaming. Don't you stop praying. Don't you give in to sin. Whatever hurt or heartbreak you're facing, when you feel inadequate, you will. When you feel unspiritual, and you will. When you are lonely or confused or frightened, when you know that you are not smart enough or strong enough or rich enough, when you feel like a loser nobody, but God, but God, but God. Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody in this room. I pray for people that are all fired up and, and uh, uh, dreaming great dreams. I pray for people who just feel defeated. Parents that have lost a child, families that are brokenhearted, People that feel like they wanted so much to make a difference, they, but they were never able to get the education or the connection or the opportunity. People maybe that are so consumed by trying to look smart, look successful, that killing it's killing them.
I pray that the crucified one who met Paul on the road to Damascus and turned everything upside down would meet every man, every woman, every one of us now, God. But God, but God, but God, would you use us? But God, would you forgive us? But God, would you cleanse us? But God, would you give us a new day and a new start and hope for tomorrow? And we pray this together in the great name of our friend and forgiver and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.